invite you to turn with your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Or if you have a Red Pew Bible there, invite you to turn to page number 289. 289. 289. Or in the Red, in the, or in the Bibles, 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 11. up reading in chapter one just to set a little bit of the context uh, this is uh, those might be some may be familiar that this is the story of Hannah and her desire to have a child and the difficulties she had uh, with conception and uh, the struggles that she had in her own home with competition um, very difficult experience for her um, and yet God was faithful to her to bring her the joy uh, to be able to hold a little one. And 1 Samuel 2, but I'm going to pick up at verse 1 of the previous, excuse me, 21 of the previous chapter and uh, start with verse 21. The man Elkanah and his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young, and they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He's lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, and the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who had many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up, and the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. And the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. 
and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. I found this uh, family circus comic in a post, online post, uh, with a snarky little uh, caption. It said, this cartoon is hilarious because Thel's life is the worst. If you look closely, you'll notice that the center page is in color and shows uh, all focus on her on Mother's Day. And uh, there's just a lot of attention and feet are up. And, and then the other pages are kind of grayed out. And actually, in all those other little pages throughout the year, you see Thelma cleaning up after messes, fixing food for hungry mouths, washing windows, fixing a toilet even, grocery shopping with the kids, making beds, ironing, chauffeuring. And uh, here's another family circus that I found out. It actually pretty much sums it all up. A little girl here to the mom in the laundry room says, uh, isn't it nice to have everything back to normal after your day off? <laughs> very, very few men and women, though, through the centuries have lived what we might call a charmed life where everything is just easy. Uh, not a few have shed tears uh, in their mothering and their fathering. But in the hallowed halls of faith, there is Hannah, the mother of Samuel. Hannah did not live a charmed life. No, in fact, she had a very hard life. And she lived in a very spiritually dark, um, a depressing, really, era time to live in, and in some ways you might see some parallels uh, between how she was, the world she was living in, and even our own day. Hannah lived in the time of the judges. Uh, we look at this as 1 Samuel, but if you just go back a few pages, you're in the judges, in which there was a period of time in which there was no, no king in Israel, and everyone did that which was right in their own eyes, and that Radical individualism caused a lot of instability, a lot of lawlessness, and subjugation by foreigners in the land. In theory, God was their king, but in Hannah's day, Matthew Henry put it this way, he said, Though God was their king, every man would be his own master, as if there was no king. Everyone, as I said, did that which was right in their own eyes. In fact, even the priesthood, those who thought, who ought to have seen God as their king, did that which was right in their own eyes. And Hophni and Phinehas were priests of the Lord, serving underneath of their ancient father, Eli. First Samuel has these condemning words of them, those two boys. They were worthless men. 1 Samuel 2.12 says, they were worthless men and they didn't know the Lord. Can you imagine trying to carry out the, the workings of the tabernacle and not even having a relationship with God? Uh, they were sexually immoral young men and they also took bribes and they were corrupt. It was a very difficult and dark time period for Hannah to be living Women also had emotional, difficult living conditions 
in their own homes. Some women shared a home not with a single husband, but also with a rival wife. And in 1 Samuel 1, verse 3 to 8, we hear of the emotional trauma that that was causing to, to Hannah. Look with me over at verse 3 of the, next, of the previous chapter. It says, Now this man, Elkanah, that was her husband, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her. And though the Lord had closed her womb, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, and as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to, be, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Boy, men were very insensitive, weren't they? In those days? Notice that, uh, you know, he didn't even really, as a husband, while he loved her, he didn't really even know how to relate to her. And how difficult that would have also complicated things in her own home. But, you know, even men in general were very insensitive. They were cold and oblivious, really, to what was going on in the lives of women. We actually see even Eli himself doing the same thing. In fact, uh, if you look down at verse 12, uh, you see Eli misunderstanding what Hannah's doing. Hannah's praying, pouring out her heart with tears. And Eli, verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli had observed her mouth, and Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. And Hannah answered, no, Lord, I am, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Don't regard your servant as a worthless uh, woman. Uh, for all along, I have been speaking out of the great anxiety of vexation of my heart. He couldn't even understand and relate to Hannah. Hannah, I'm just trying to illustrate. Hannah didn't have it easy. She did not have a charmed life. Yet... Throughout her days, she was able to retrieve some joy from the Lord to keep her going. And it was rooted in her faith in God, which shows up in her prayer when she brings this little baby whom she had prayed for to the temple. Hannah was truly best blessed by the Lord, and she had done the right thing all along. She had poured out her heart to the Lord who is able to redeem her and her circumstances. And it sets before us, actually, and to moms, and actually anyone who's really listening, that we can find for ourselves the joy of the Lord. It can be our strength. And I want to encourage us this morning from Hannah's prayer 
And I want us to see four areas in which Hannah retrieved joy to affect her soul, to keep her going in spite of the challenges that she was wrestling with. I find uh, very significant that Hannah's prayer starts very much like Mary's prayer in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Hannah says, my heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Mary, if you recall, said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And I see in those parallels that throughout the ages, faithful women, faithful mothers have put their trust and hope in the Lord in spite of their circumstances and have found him to be faithful. The emotional uplift that occurred for Hannah and Mary is derived in God, my Savior. And so I want us to think meditatively as we consider the words of Hannah and her prayer. And first I want us to see that in the first way, Hannah derived joy from God by reflecting upon God's nature. Upon God's nature, verse 2 and 3. We read this introduction, if you will, in her prayer. She says, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There's no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly and let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The first characteristic that she identifies is that the Lord is holy. He's holy. He says, she says, none holy like the Lord. How is it that the spotlessness of God could be a source of comfort, a source of joy? Well, you see, Hannah had gone to worship annually with her family. It was a dysfunctional family. She very well knew all the rumors about the priesthood. You couldn't help but know them. Hophni and Phineas were doing what they were doing. And yet she still came with her family. And she identified God as being something that we are not. As being absolutely holy. In God, there is no darkness, there's no corruption, there's no immorality, absolute, pure love. And she identified the truth about God that there is none holy like him. What a great starting place. She also identifies him as being one, being unified. She says in verse 2, there is none besides you. Now this unity gave her comfort, it gave her joy as well, because that assured her heart that there were no other gods that she had forgotten about. And furthermore, all of her heart could be poured out to the correct and true and living God. 
and he would hear her. Not even Satan himself, the archenemy of God, is able to thwart the plans of God. And this brought comfort to her soul. You know, Satan thought he was able to thwart the plans of God by moving Judas to go and take Jesus and betray him. But he couldn't have been more wrong. He acted in the interest of God. There is such a unity. There is no other God like our God. She also derived strength, recognizing his strength. In verse 2, he says, she says, excuse me, no, there's no rock like our God. Now, she was not alive to hear the words of Isaiah the prophet, but they're very, very meaningful. In which Isaiah said, and have you not known, have you not heard, that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not grow faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and grow weary. And the young men shall go exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not be faint. Why is that the case? Because God loves to share his strength with his creatures. And if we identify where the resources will come from, we will be sure to receive them when we ask for them. There's a, another element that she identifies in God's nature in verse 3. She says, talk no more so very proudly and let not the arrogance come through your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. The Lord is a God of knowledge. His eye is on the sparrow. He knows when the sparrow falls. He knows when the dog bites. Or when God's servant takes her last breath. He knows. And God's knowledge is not statistical, although it is certainly all-inclusive, but it is relational. There's nothing that slips from his attention, especially those whom he has set his love upon. Those whom he has redeemed, not even Time will take us away from his knowledge. He will bring us up out of the grave. And he will not let us perish. That's something that you can take joy from. There's a third, uh, a last element here that I can see in these texts. She also recognized his justice. In verse 3, it says, For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. They're weighed. God knows us, but you know, he also knows what others have done to us. He knows the fine nuance of what a selfish act is and what truly loving another really is. Because the second person of the Trinity was sent to bear. He was sent to bear the punishment for our sins. 
so that he might justly forgive. He takes great interest in the harms that either we have done or others have done towards us. He is a forgiving and he is a loving God. Now the meditation on these perfections are intended to draw us into a better place. Hannah knew these truths to be so. And the character, you know, that when you look at something, I don't know how you are, but when I drive, if I'm not careful, my eyes will take me places. The steering wheel kind of moves because I'm not looking straight down the road. And that's the true tendency of all of our hearts, that that which we look upon tends to move us and move us into alignment with. And the more we engage the nature of God, the more our hearts are turned and transformed to become that which we are gazing upon. You know, there's no greater person to extend our gaze upon than the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a man of perfect character. He exemplified the strongest of traits without the limits of weakness. Think about some of the strong leaders that we know. They also have negative weaknesses, don't they? But Jesus had none of those. He had all of the perfect perfects. With Christ, he was without flaw, without any contradiction, without any inconsistency. We can get our hearts focused on people around us, and Hannah, God bless Hannah, who looked at people who were not perfect and was able to look beyond those people to the Lord Jesus Christ, to her Heavenly Father in the Ancient of Days. Looking to Christ and deriving joy from Him is essential. And it's for our good. This world that we live in, we attempt to try to live a charmed life. But ladies, remember this, what Proverbs says. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman that fears the Lord, she shall be praised. There's another couple of these areas in which she was able to derive joy. And I see in verses 4 through 8, that she took great encouragement from God's providence. God's providence. Now, in these verses, there's a consistent pattern of reversal of fortunes. In verse 4, you see how the, the mighty are broken and then the feeble are strengthened. You see in the first part of verse 5, the full then become hungry and then the hungry become satisfied. You have the barren is being blessed with children, and those with lots of children are rejected by them. The Lord gives, and then the Lord takes, gives life. He brings eternal death, and then he brings eternal life. In verse 7 and 8, she says, The Lord raises the poor and lifts the needy, and then puts down the wealthy and the powerful. You know, when we see reversals of fortune in such a way that it is indicative of a form of punishment or a form of reward, they take on a greater significance. And these reversals are called poetic justice. It's a common theme, it's a common tool in wisdom literature 
because it teaches moral truths to intend us to not follow that example, but follow the better example. And it's important for us to listen to those and perceive when we see those instances of God's providence allowing the, the wicked to get their comeuppance and then allow grace to be given to those who are weak. It would be wise of us to consider and examine. Now, poetic justice can be negative or positive. Now, it's often used in storytelling, and I, I, I enjoy good movies as much as anyone else. I loved the situation in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Indiana was uh, taken emotionally captive by this woman, uh, kind of falling into love with this Nazi super, uh, sympathizer, and she's actually out for the Holy Grail. She's not really interested. She's using Indiana. And uh, in the last scene, you, you probably remember some of these elements if you've ever watched it. She has the choice to take life or to grab the grail. And she looks at Indy and then looks at the grail, and then she chooses the grail and then slips into the crevice and is gone forever. And in that moment, there's a poetic reversal of justice as things are unfolding. But here in Anna, Hannah's prayer of thanksgiving, she's noting both the positive and the negatives. And she gives recognition to that in her own body, she was given grace of the Lord to become pregnant. And in the midst of opposition in her own home, she recognized the contempt of her rival. She had, her rival had no problems conceiving. And she was, and Hannah was reminded with every passing month. And Hannah's own experience, she connected her own reversal of fortunes and connected it to the way God works in his world. What's beautiful, and we sing this, these words in this hymn, we sing, this is my father's world. And oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, he is the ruler yet. She recognized this truth, and she derived great joy from the observance of God's sovereignty in her own life to allow and to disallow and to close and to open. And in verse 8, she gives recognition to this, and she says, in verse 8, at the end, he says, she says, For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. This is God's world. And God has designed a universe where he receives recognition and renown from his creatures. And if you're able to learn to connect the dots... Doing so will help you to gain joy in the giving of glory to God. There's a lot of times where we don't feel like we're winning. And we can have every confidence, though, that God in his wise disposition knows what he's doing. And ultimately, he will bring you to a better place as you obey him and put your faith and trust in him each and every day. God's providence is rich. And we as believers 
know that we have been born into a world in which we had no control over. We all have inherited dispositions, genetic features, which were the consequence of thousands and millions of decisions that predate us. But all of this is in the hands of God who lives from generation to generation and does not change. He is wise beyond our own limited viewpoint. There is a day coming in which the sins of this world will be removed and the battle will be won. And we'll finish that song. That this is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. Verse 9, we also see her deriving joy from God's merciful treatment. More specifically, she's, she's owning up to her own situation. And verse 9 says, And he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. Here Hannah considers her own situation, and she knows that she has been one of his faithful ones. God has guarded her feet. Now, people who are very conscientious of their own weaknesses are in a place in which they can receive great blessing from the Lord. In our culture, it is very easy to downplay our weaknesses for the sake of projection and the appearance of and the attempt to appear to have it all together. But when weakness comes, it's not something necessarily to be ashamed of. Notice what Hannah says. It's not by might that a man or a woman will prevail. See, when God did not deliver Paul, Paul had, you know, a thorn in the flesh. And he... He looked at that thorn in the flesh, that weakness that we really don't, we don't know what exactly it was. Maybe some had perceived that it could be blindness or, or, or short, uh, nearsightedness that he couldn't really see well. We're not really sure what it was. But he said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he said, My grace, referring to the Lord speaking to him, the Lord, he, he prayed to the Lord three times and the Lord responded, My grace is sufficient for you. And for my power is made perfect in your weakness. See, there is an, if, if there is an extra sensitivity to our own weaknesses, it's a great opportunity to take refuge in the Lord. He delights to give his strength to those who recognize that they are weak and not mighty. See, when Jesus began his ministry, he was born not in a palace, he was born in a manger. He was, it was obscure. And you know, he called fishermen. He called tax collectors. He called prostitutes. And they turned and they followed him. They responded to him because he acknowledged their weakness in a way that there was gentleness. He called them, yes, to do hard things, to like leave family and to to leave occupations and to leave old sinful habits. But he showed those whom he called that he desired to bless them in spite of the weaknesses that they had within them. 
And I find in this a remarkable encouragement for us all, and particularly for the ladies among us. The scriptures, don't be embarrassed that the scriptures would call you the weaker vessel in relationship with a man. Because that's a place of great honor, actually. This biological fact that we inherit provides you with a particular honor in God's eyes. Women actually are often the first to come to the empty tomb. They are the ones who seem to be more sensitive to the workings of God in their lives. And it is the Lord's joy to give you and offer you the kingdom. There are many men who are proud and they get passed over and grace comes to the weak. There's a fourth, there's a fourth beautiful communication in this, this, this song of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord in verse 10. She recognizes and derives joy from the destiny that God has for us in God. A glorious destiny. The last lines say, And the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, and against them he will thunder in heaven, and the Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is a really fascinating line because it includes a bit of prophecy. Because Israel, when she's saying this, didn't have a king. Who in the world was she thinking of or talking about? I believe, guided by the Holy Spirit, she's seeing a king that is coming and a kingdom that's going to be set up and ruled over by the Lord's anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the greatest way, that's whom she probably saw. She probably saw steps along the way. She may have seen David. She may have seen Hezekiah, Josiah. There might have been other kings that she was thinking of and seeing. Maybe didn't know their names. But... In this, I think we also can receive encouragement since Jesus has come. Jesus is the one who came to heal the brokenhearted and to bring the greatest of reversals of fortune. And Peter writes of this great reversal. He said this in 1 Peter 2. He said, He, that is Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and to live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That is the greatest reversal of fortunes. It's eternal in scope. Hannah recognized that in her own home, there was an adversary. There was an enemy there against her. But she also recognized that those who make themselves her enemy are ultimately making God their enemy. And an enemy is anyone who really puts themselves into opposition against you. Now, I know that there are times where we create our own problems and we, we become enemies to other people. I, I understand that. And as pleasant as it is and when we experience that opposition towards us, we can derive joy knowing that God in his infinite knowledge, takes note of those things. And even when our lives are harder, they're not charmed, they're not what we want, 
And as unpleasant as they are, we can take great comfort in knowing that one day we will be vindicated before his throne. And the greatest enemy that we all face is sin and death, and that enemy has been crushed. God took this enemy seriously, so seriously that he went to the cross and defeated death for us. Paul said this, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. That is poetic justice. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus is coming, and he will bring the satisfaction that we so desire. And by looking up through time and with eyes of faith, we can derive joy. And may I pray the joy of the Lord be our strength this morning. Very few women through the centuries, as I say, have lived a charmed life. But the world tries to put before us a picture of the perfect life. Some ideal that we, we feel like we have to attain in order to, to feel like we've done it. Beware of those lies. They're like false gods tempting us to turn our eyes and hearts away from the one who gives us true joy. We can have a fear of missing out, but it will only increase our discontentment. It's real joy that can be derived from the Lord's nature, his providence, from his merciful treatment, and from his eternal destiny that he wants to include us in. So I want to ask you this morning, what is it that you are deriving your joy from? Is it the circumstances that are all around you? You have to have everything just perfectly so in order to find your joy? Or are you able to look to the Lord who gives all joy? Do you drive joy from the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that I have nothing to give? I inherit all grace from him. Jesus takes special note of those who will humble themselves and recognize the weaknesses that they, they have and that we come to him through repentance and faith. Jesus said this. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How do you do that? How do you come? You come with your heart. It's the attitude and orientation of your heart. It's in your heart and mind saying, Lord, save me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, heal me. Change me. Give me your grace. I leave all behind. I, I have nothing in my hand. I, it's just as I am, I come. And you too will find the joy of the Lord to be your strength if you come with that attitude of the heart. Let's pray.